Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. One of my least favorite spaces on earth is the crawl space above our garage. (laughs) It's one of my least favorite spaces, partly because I'm not a small person and to try to rummage around up there, you know, it's just difficult for me. Also, there's no ventilation there whatsoever, and it's right up against the roof. So if you go in there at the wrong time of day, I, I run hot already. So to get up there, it's just, a, it's just a hard experience. But it's a useful space as long as you bring a light with you. You know, we can store lots of things there, and, you know, we put all our decorations throughout the year there, and I usually try to have them lined up. You know, there's the spring decorations, the fall decorations, the uh, Christmas decorations that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. But, you know, as we go through the different seasons, I'll, we'll pack everything up, and it's my job to go up into that, at, into that attic or that crawl space and take the stuff down that we need and put the stuff that we don't need for that season back up. And it's, it's real clear that I don't like going up there because sometimes there will be boxes sitting on the floor of the garage for two or three or four months waiting for the time where I feel conditions are perfect for me to go up into that crawl space. But like I said, it's useful as long as there's a light, as long as I bring a light. If there's no light, there's no natural light in that space. And so it serves no purpose. But once things are revealed, once things are seen, once I can look at the labels of boxes and begin moving things around, it's a useful space. I tell that story because John, in this portion of the letter, makes a big announcement about God. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, the reason he said that is very clear. There were false teachers that were floating around in his era who said that they were in fellowship with God. They said that they were enjoying God. They said that they were in spiritual union and in relationship with the living God. Now remember why John said he wanted to write this letter. Last week we saw it in the first four verses. He said, I wanna tell you about the real Jesus. People are telling you about fake Jesus. I wanna tell you about the real Jesus that I saw, I touched, I heard, I walked with, I lived my life with. And he said, the reason I wanna tell you about the true Jesus is so that you can connect to the apostles, not these false teachers, but so that you can connect to us and the truth that we're dispensing so that you can have a real relationship with the real God, not the one that these false teachers are promoting. And he said, and I know that if that happens, then our joy will be complete. Our joy will be full. So really, John is writing this to us so that we can know the real Jesus, be walking with the real God as revealed in Scripture so that we can have total and complete joy in this life of ours. But the false teachers would have said, well, John, you're going to tell your audience about walking with God, about enjoying God. But we enjoy God. We are walking with God. And for that reason, John wants to talk for a second here in verse 5 about who God is. You see, they had an improper understanding of who God even is in the first place. And he felt if he could show them who God is, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, it would change completely their relationship with 
the living God. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is that God is light. Now notice in verse five the way he says it though. He doesn't just say of his own accord, hey, here's something I want to tell you. I've discovered that God is light. No, he says in verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. What he's saying is that he learned from Jesus that God is light. Now, if you took a Bible concordance or you went in online and you began to search or you opened your Bible app and started searching for the phrase, God is light, expecting to find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you wouldn't find it. Jesus, we don't have any record at least of him saying the words or giving the teaching, God is light in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, it's possible that Jesus did say it. John himself said at the close of uh, his gospel, the last chapter of the gospel of John, he said, the things that Jesus did, the, the, the life that he lived, the whole world is not big enough to contain the books that could have been written about his life. So it's very possible that there was a point where Jesus sat his disciples down and taught them and said, Here, here's something you need to know about God. God is light. But I think it's probable that what John is talking about is not what Jesus said, but, but the life that Jesus lived. You see, in the Bible, light is used in two very distinct ways. First of all, light is used to describe that which illuminates what was previously darkened. Listen to a couple of verses like these. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In him, Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or one more, John 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And all of those uses of light that I just read to you are talking about how there's something there about God, either in his word or in his presence, that reveals us, shows us the truth shows us the way that we should go, or shows us the darker corners of our lives, the darker corners of our hearts. His presence reveals us, so to speak. But another way that light is used throughout the Bible is to talk about the reason why God's presence reveals us, that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is so pure that it is the emanating of light that comes from him. One passage that you see this is actually in the book of Revelation where a description is given of heaven and it tells us that in heaven there's no need for sun or moon because God himself and the lamb himself, they provide the light. In other words, the glory, the holiness that emanates from them will illuminate that very real space. So have those ideas about light in your mind when you read that God is light. It's as if what John is saying is that as he lived with this front row seat watching Jesus, he just discovered the truth that God is light. He'd watch Jesus walk into a room of people and he'd, he'd watch people's hearts exposed as Jesus interacted with them. He'd listen to Jesus' teaching and he'd watch the truth become revealed as Jesus opened his mouth. 
And he'd watch Jesus' actions, the way he treated the religious leaders or the way that he treated uh, sinners and tax collectors, and he'd see the heart of God revealed as he watched the life of Jesus. I think that John, with his front row seat to Jesus, just came to the conclusion, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, for John, he felt that a walk with God just completely exposed the person who was walking with God. He felt that a walk with God would reveal cracks in the armor, would reveal fleshly and sinful tendencies, and would draw a person into deeper holiness. And when he looked at the false teachers, he did not see those attributes. He saw people who wanted to persist in sin. He saw people who wanted to persist in walking in the darkness. And so his conclusion was that they were not walking with God who is light. And so he announces to them, hey, you guys need to know about God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I just want to say this, because as we go through this passage, we're going to discover that there are dangers to resisting the light of God. There are going to be three teachings that John is going to reference. He's going to start each one of them by saying, if we say. It's kind of, this passage is kind of like a preacher's dream because the outline is already there for you. Because three times he's going to say, if we say. And then he'll give the claim that these false teachers make. And then he'll say, the result of living that way. Now before we look at the phrases or the, the, the assertions they made, I want to put on the screen for you the results of living this way. First of all, notice in verse six of chapter one, one result of buying into the lie or resisting God's light is he says, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, our life is incongruent. It, it's like your relationship with others is in the dark. You're, you're lying to others if you walk in the dark, yet say you have a relationship with God. But also in verse 8, he says, even further, he says, we deceive ourselves. If we could put verse 8 up there, 1 John 1, verse 8. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So in the first one, we're lying to others, but in the second one, we are deceiving ourselves. So we're corrupting relationships with others, but we're also corrupting our relationship with ourselves. I'm sure it's not hard for you to imagine or even just call to mind a person that you know who is walking in the darkness, and they're walking in a self-deception. They can't even see the error of their ways. They can't even see the negative effect they're having on other people. And then thirdly, in verse 10, he says, to live this way is to make God or make him a liar. It's, it's, to, it's to accuse God of being a liar. So, so what you see there is that to resist God as the one who is light and to refuse to walk with God as the great revealer, the great holy one, what it does is it puts you in a position where you're harming your relationship with others, you're harming your relationship with yourself, and you're harming your relationship with God. It's far better to just walk in the light with God where he is and to let honesty and introspection and truth come into your life. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage. So I hope I'm selling it big time that it is good for us to know that God is light, in him is no darkness at all, and to walk with him as such. All right, so, so because of that, 
Let's just think about three things. What are the three things that John is gonna show us that God's light can produce in our lives if we'll let him? Number one, it's this. God's light produces fellowship and sanctification. Let's read verse six and seven together where we get this truth. He says, you guys with me? Read verse six and seven with me. Put your head down. Look at your Bible. I know they'll put it on the screen too, but he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's the first claim that these people made. They were saying they had fellowship with God, but they were also simultaneously walking in darkness. So they were, they were saying, you know, hey, we're good. Us and God, we're good. But, but their life was a life of darkness. So John says, if we do that, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So the result of walking in the light is that we actually have fellowship with each other and then we get the cleansing effect of the blood of Jesus upon our lives. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But notice first, John talks here about those who walk in darkness. Now, I wanna define this for a second because some of John's statements, to be honest, can be rather scary at first glance. You know, you might think of the person who walks in darkness as opposite to the person whose life is morally perfect. But that's not how John sees things. Uh, later in this very passage, John is going to teach us that though we have the opportunity to have victory over sin, he fully expects that there will be moments in our lives where we stumble, where we're not successful in the battle against temptation. And in those moments, he's gonna tell us to confess our sins to the Lord. He's gonna tell us we have an advocate to the Father or with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in John's mind, when he says, look, there are people out there who say they have friendship with God, but they're actually walking in darkness, he's not talking about people who from time to time fall to temptation. No, he's talking about people whose habit and practice is to be out of the light of God. They're living a life of rebellion against the Lord. I think you could say it like this. This person that he's describing they have tried as hard as they can to turn off the light of God. You think about the light of God. How does God illuminate a life? Well, his word is one way that he illuminates a life. So a person walking in darkness, they want nothing to do with God's word. They twist it and turn it. They manipulate it to say what they wanted to say they refuse to, to read it honestly and genuinely. They don't like listening to it taught and proclaimed. They try to get the Bible out of their lives. Another thing that God does to give his light to human beings is he produces Christian fellowship. I mean, sometimes it's like our relationship to each other. It's like walking around with a bunch of mirrors. Have you ever had that experience where you're with a bunch of believers that are, they love the Lord, they're doing well, and they're just talking about their lives, and it's like what they're talking about is a mirror to your own soul. You're seeing yourself in a different way as you look at the way that they are walking with the living God. But this person doesn't want that light. So they remove themselves from fellowship, maybe at first in an emotional or mental kind of way, but then eventually in a physical way, they remove themselves from true Christian fellowship. 
And another way that God's light likes to shine in a human's life is when we pray, when we cry out to God. But a person who's walking in darkness, they find an ineffectiveness in their life of prayer because there's a lack of honesty before the living God. This life, John says, he calls it in verse six, a lie. It's a sad myth of a life to say I have fellowship with God, yet to walk in darkness. Now hopefully I've just freaked you out about that kind of life because in verse seven we get the better side of things. He says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship and that means with each other and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Now to walk in the light, like I said, it's not a moral perfection. You know, it's not that somebody lives a life that is totally perfect on this side of eternity. But it does mean that we live in a way that we're allowing the light of God to shine into our lives, where we're letting the word of God expose the weaknesses that are there, the sinful tendencies, where we're allowing Christian fellowship to shape us and mold us, and other people who we know and trust are able to speak into our lives, and where we're crying out to the Lord, praying to him, asking that he would cleanse us and shape us. But let me just say it like this. I think it is miserable to walk in the darkness. There's many examples of this in the Bible, but one example that comes to mind is from the book of, Jer- of, of Joshua when the people of Israel went and battled against Jericho. Now, God had promised the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, and he also was using the people of Israel to judge the citizens of Canaan for long decades worth of abhorrent practices that they would not repent of. And so God sent his people into the promised land, being led by Joshua. One thing that God said to them, he said, look, all of this belongs to you. You can have all of their houses and livestock and all their garments and possessions and all of that. But the first city that I give to you, the first victory that I win for you, you don't get any of that. It all belongs to me. It's supposed to be consecrated to me, an offering to me. So they went in. God gave them a victory over Jericho. But there was a man named Achan who didn't like the command of God. And as they were going through the ruins of Jericho, he saw a Babylonian garment and he saw a wedge of gold and he took them for himself and he hid them inside of his tent. Now, eventually, Achan was caught. The Lord pointed out his sin, and and actually, his sin held back the nation of Israel from further victory for a period of time. It wasn't until he was outed that they began to have victory again. But I just imagine Achan living in absolute misery during that time that he was walking in darkness. I imagine him going to his life group, for example, and people asking him, you know, hey, Achan, how's it How's it going in your life? How's your walk with God? You know, what's happening? And I imagine him sitting there with his Babylonian jacket on and everybody's looking at him like, where'd you get that? And, and, and just feeling miserable about where his life was at. I imagine him wanting so badly to get back into the light. You see, that life in darkness, it breaks fellowship with other believers. That's why he says, when you come into the light, you have fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. That clean life, that life in the light, it allows us to walk with each other. But notice also he says there in verse seven, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now all through this passage, what John is talking about is sanctification. 
He's not implying that to walk in the light somehow earns your salvation. He's not saying that walking in the light saves us, but he means that it sanctifies us. In other words, in John's view of things, in the New Testament view of things, people who are believers, they are positionally clean before God, but to walk in the light gives us practical experience of God's cleansing in this life that we're in. And we should have this hope, this hope that since walking in the darkness damages our relationship with others, that we should crave this cleansing of sin so that it can produce victory in our lives. There's a little verse that I like from Proverbs 4, verse 18. It says this, it says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. His way of describing a righteous life is he says it's like the first half of the day. You know, the sun comes up and it continues to rise and the righteous life is like that. So for us, the way we could think about it is when you first got saved, it was like the dawning of the day. You know, the, the light began to shine. The Lord was working in your life, but, but things weren't still fully seen or revealed. But then the sun continues to rise. And the sun be- continues to reveal and shadows begin to run and flee. But then when the sun is at full strength, that speaks of, he's saying, that full glorification, that full walk with the Lord, that life that says, man, look, this is what God has done inside of my life. And of course, we know that this will fully come when Jesus appears. John said in 1 John 3, verse 2, and we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. But that's where we're going. We're going to the full day, the full noonday sun, where we're just like Jesus, pure and clean, and practically, as well as positionally, of course, holy like he is. But our walk with him today is producing that in our lives. Okay, what else does God's light produce? Secondly, number two, God's light produces a chain reaction of grace. It produces a chain reaction of grace. Let me show you what I'm talking about in verse eight and nine. It says, if we say we have no sin, remember that phrase? He's already used it in verse six. If we say we have no sin, here's the second one. If we say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, verse nine, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just an absolutely beautiful verse. All right, so he mentions in verse eight, a claim that these false teachers made. Some of them went around saying, not just that they had friendship with God, though they were walking in darkness, but here, secondly, they say, we have no sin. Now, I don't know if you've ever known anybody like this, but it's a really frustrating experience. You are never right, you are always wrong when a person feels this way about themselves. This person, we don't know exactly what it was that these people were claiming. They might have been saying that they thought that they could somehow become morally perfect. I think it's probable that an early Gnostic error had come into the church. And in Gnosticism, you would say, we have a deeper knowledge of things. And one thing that we know is that God does not care about the physical, but only the spiritual. 
So probably these people were going around saying, we're doing things in the physical realm that you might call sins, but God doesn't care about them. In the spiritual realm, we have no sin and we're good with God. But whatever it was, they were saying, we have no, no sin. And in our day, of course, we might not say the same exact thing, but we have other creative ways for denying we have a sin problem. One thing we like to do is reclassify or soften words that describe sin. So adultery becomes cheating. Or to be greedy is to be a penny pincher. Or to have sex with your girlfriend is to sleep with your girlfriend. And there are all kinds of different things that we do to sort of soften what sin actually is. And we also like to defend or excuse our sin. We say things like, nobody's perfect after all, or in comparison to them, or I'm no Hitler, or things like that. And we definitely don't want to call it sin in this age that we're living in. We don't like passages like Romans 3, verse 9 to 11, where Paul said all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This person was denying all of these truths. They would not believe that they had a sin problem. But when you're walking with God, who is light, you're just gonna come face to face with the reality that you do struggle with sin. And when that happens, what do you do? Well, he tells us in verse nine. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I love this from John. This is so filled with hope. He just announces to us, look, you can't say that you have no sin. And when you're walking with God and his light reveals sin in your life, here's what you should do with it. He says, you must confess your sins. Now, the idea of this passage is that we should confess our sins to God. And the reason that it's, that's the idea is because he then goes on to say, because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God here is the target of our confession. Now, some of you might be sitting here saying to yourself, I can handle that because if I have to confess to somebody else the stuff I've been doing, that just freaks me out. But I'll talk to God in private about it, and that'll kind of be as far as it goes. But James does not let us off the hook so easily. He says in his book, chapter 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. In fact, it's at, at times our confession to other believers that helps us to actually walk in the light in the first place and then have the accountability to stay in the light, to say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm battling with. This is what's going on in my life. But here, John is saying we should confess our sins to God. And he also means that we should confess the sins that are discovered, our known sins. I mean, the reality is, I could never confess every sin that I've ever committed. I don't even think it would be possible for me to confess every sin that I've committed just today. I mean, the reality is there's things that I just don't even know that I've done. There's things that, that haven't even come across my radar yet. But when we know that we've committed it, when we know that we've entered into it, 
we must confess it before the Lord. We must have courage, call it a sin, and tell God that we hate what we've done. And if we do, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, like I've been saying, this doesn't mean that you're forgiven positionally for the very first time. You know, if you discover a sin, you confess it, you get saved. And then a new sin, you confess it, you get saved again. Then a new sin, you confess it, you get saved again. And on and on we go in a process of losing your salvation and then getting your salvation back again. That's not what John is talking about. No, in his mind, he's talking about becoming more like Jesus, a person that's already positionally forgiven, receiving the practical cleansing of their lives so that they become more like Christ, forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, you might be scared to confess your sin to the Lord, but I don't think we have any reason to fear. I remember when I was a little boy, there was this time, you know, you're a little kid, you're confused about things, you don't understand how much stuff is worth, and I remember this one time I was playing in our backyard and I was goofing around on a, one of the trees of, uh, that was in our yard, a kind of a centerpiece kind of tree, and I was, I was goofing around doing something I shouldn't do, and, and one of the main branches, it was a smaller tree, I ripped it off, you know, it just my body weight just tore it off, and I felt so badly, and I kind of hid what I did. I can't remember how I hid it. I might have just put it like back in the tree, you know, hoping that nobody would notice. And then a separate incident happened about a month later where I was playing again, and, and I broke a clay pot that was in my mother's garden. And I was pretty sure that that clay pot probably cost her about a million dollars, you know? And, and I felt really badly about it, but I did the same thing. I kind of put it back together again and turned it so that you couldn't notice and just walked away. And about a month later, uh, I remember my mom saying to me, and I, and I felt terrible about this. I had a tender little con conscience. I would look out the window into the yard and see if anybody was near the pot. You know, I mean, I just felt terrible. I was, in, I was in walking in real darkness, and it just was bad for my walk with the Lord. But my mom said to me one day, she said, hey, uh, Nathan, I found this broken pot in the yard. Did you break this pot, you know, and I just thought, oh man, here it is, she's found out, I'm going to be grounded till college, like this is going to be horrible, and, but I admitted it, I said, yeah, I did it, and she said, well, that, and, I, and I just was crying, I'm, like, I'm so sorry, and she's like, well, that's fine, it's no big deal, I forgive you, and when I saw how cool she was about it, I just immediately said, and I also broke the branch <laughs> in the tree, I saw that she was predisposed to give grace, to give forgiveness. Look, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what, what should we see? We should see the predisposition of God to forgive, the predisposition of God to cleanse. So when we come across sin in our relationship with the Lord, as his light shines upon our lives, we should not be afraid of confessing our sin to him. But don't make excuses for yourself. Don't try to make yourself seem better than you really are in the sight of God. He's not fooled by any, any of that stuff. Just be honest with him and say, Lord, I confess this to you. Would you cleanse me? Would you wash my life? Would you help me? All right, let's look at the last thing that God's light can produce. Number three, God's light produces real help for everyone. Produces real help 
for everyone. You know, we've already seen that walking with God honestly, truthfully in the light, it produces fellowship with other Christians and it produces cleansing, sanctification from the Lord. And then we've also seen that walking in the light, it produces a chain reaction of grace, you know, where you're walking with God, something in his word or something in a sermon or something in an interaction with another Christian or in your prayer life, it just helps you see, okay, here's, here's where I've been walking in error, an attitude I've had that isn't right or a judgmental spirit I've had. And it just starts this chain reaction of God's grace where there's his light, he reveals it, you then confess it and he starts cleansing you from that thing. And that judgmental spirit, as an example, it just decreases. It grows less and less, and you're gaining victory in your life. But a third thing here is that God's light produces real help, real, actual help for everyone. Let's read about it in verse 10 all the way through verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, here's the third claim. You know, if we say, and this claim is, we have not sinned. First person says, you know, I'm walking in darkness, but I, but I have God. I'm walking with God, but they're in darkness. The second person says, I don't have any sin. And this person says, we have not sinned. Maybe they mean the same thing as the previous people. Maybe it's a, there's some nuance to it. Maybe they're claiming that they had no sin nature, or maybe they're saying, yeah, I do have a sin nature, but I won't act out on it. I'll walk in complete victory. But again, experiencing people like this is difficult. God's word is not in them. They're accusing God of, of being a liar. They're saying, God might say that I have a struggle with sin, but it's not true. Well, John says, no, you make him a liar. Your, his word is not inside of you. You see, God says things like this all throughout his word. Passages like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verses like this are all over the New Testament. It's implied throughout them that temptation is a very real experience that Christians go through and that they actually have the capacity to enter in to the temptation. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to any of us. But these people were saying, no, I disagree with God. I have no sin. They're making God a liar. His word is not in them. So John says in verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It seems that at this point, John felt that he needed to make something really clear. Because here he is saying, look, you can't say that you don't have sin." You can't say that you don't struggle with sin. And I think there was a little bit of hesitation in his heart, like, okay, they're hearing me. I'm saying even Christians are going to battle with sin in this life. 
And I think he was a little bit worried that his readers might say to themselves, okay, man, John's making a really big deal about how we're gonna struggle with sin, it's gonna be there, it's gonna be a battle, we're gonna be tempted, and sometimes we're gonna give into it and we need to confess it to the Lord when we do. And I think maybe he's kind of sitting there going, they might get the wrong idea that I'm kind of saying like, hey, it's just what we do, and that the readers might say like, man, John really thinks we're gonna sin a lot, so like, let's... Let's, let's back him up on his belief. Let's go to Vegas, you know? Like, let's do the thing that he thinks we're gonna do so much of. So he makes it clear. He says, look, little children, you know, like a father, he speaks to them and says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see, John believes, like Paul, like James, like others, he believes in the power of the cross of Christ. He believes that Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, sets a person free from sin. That he pays the penalty and then endues upon them a new nature and gives to them his Holy Spirit. So John is confident that though there will be temptation and though we will struggle and though we will from time to time slip into sin, he believes that we can more and more ever increasingly gain victory over the flesh. That's why he says it this way. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I want to help you enjoy the freedom that Jesus Christ won for you. He believed that victory is possible, but then I just love John because in the same breath he says, but if anyone does sin. You know, it's just so grace-filled. Look, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, like we don't need to take a show of hands today, but we've all felt this. Man, there's victory in Jesus. I'm free in Jesus. We sing songs like we did today about my chains are gone. You know, they've, they've fled. They're not on me anymore. I've been set free. And then we go pick up our kids from children's ministry and they ask for something nine times in a row without us answering and we snap back at them and we realize, man, I thought I was free, but man, this is a real problem in my life. So John, with such grace, says, I'm writing so that you would not sin, but if you do, here's what you have. You have an advocate, he says, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate is a word that could be used to say lawyer. We have, we have a lawyer on our side who is fighting for us and defending us, who is stating our case. Now, I don't want you to get a wrong idea about what's happening when you hear that word lawyer, because you might think of God, the righteous judge, seated upon his bench in his courtroom, predisposed to drop a sentence down upon us, but Jesus, interceding for us, is saying, oh, Father, please, don't bring that into our lives. But what we have to remember, and this is made possible by the doctrine of the Trinity or the triunity of God, is that you cannot separate Father, Son, and Spirit in that kind of way. The Father himself is also predisposed to hear a case on our behalf. And the case that Jesus brings is, Father, I just want to remind the triune Godhead that this person who is covered by the blood, 
who I propitiated for. I know that's a big word, but it's in verse two. It's a word that means I satisfied the just requirement. I satisfied the wrath of God for. He says, that person, they are covered by my blood. They are ours. They belong to us. And though they have sinned, I want you to remember who they are. I know I'm not saying it right. I know that doesn't accurately represent exactly what's happening with the mysterious triune Godhead, but we must know that God is for us if we are in Christ Jesus. This is why he says there that our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. This means that it's his righteousness that we receive. It's not Nate Holdridge, the righteous, or Jeff Buck, the righteous, or Mike Casey, the righteous, or even the Apostle John, the righteous. No, none of us get righteousness from ourselves, but we get it deposited into our account by Jesus Christ himself. You see, in the midst of all of this walking in the light, we must remember our great advocate, Jesus Christ. He is a help. He provides help for Everyone. That's why he's the propitiation, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, any person that believes in him, any person that trusts in him, Jesus Christ shed his blood so that they might have life. And you might be here this morning and you've yet to believe in Jesus Christ. You've yet to ask him to forgive you of your sins. He died on the cross in your place to take your judgment from God into his body. And what you need to do today, right now, while it's still daytime, is to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin and come into my life. And you do that right in your seat right now with meaning from your heart, you will, the Bible teaches, be saved. But Jesus, he's the one. He's the hero. You see, so many times we want to walk around acting like these deceivers, like we're these really godly people, like we've got it all together. Like we are the light, but God is the light. And Jesus is our great hero that we're leaning upon. In a couple of weeks, I'm gonna teach at a men's conference and they usually at men's conferences will pick a theme and as a guest speaker or teacher, you try your best to find something that resonates with you that's in you know, step with the theme and all of that. And the theme that they're, going to use at this conference I'm teaching at in a couple of weeks. It's from Ezekiel 22, verse 30, and it's, it's actually a very depressing verse. Uh, it, it says, in a time in Israel's history where there was a lot of godlessness going on, he says, I, I sought for a man, this is God speaking, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And Like I said, it's a sad verse. God looked for a godly person, a godly man to pray, to stand in the gap, but he couldn't find anybody. And usually in a men's conference setting, the reason why a verse like this is chosen is so that we can encourage each other to be godly people. So we can encourage each other to stand in the gap, to be men of prayer, to be the godly men that God could not find in that era of Israel's history. But really, one of the big points of the Bible is that God was always looking and could never find. But that Jesus Christ is the one who stood in the gap. 
And it begins with him. And so John brings us back to that. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who intercedes for us. He's the one who gives us victory. All right, I've been doing this since I got back from sabbatical, and I don't know if I'm going to do it forever, but let's keep my streak alive. I'm going to give you some applications in closing for for this passage. Number one, I think I'm going to put it on the screen because I think my notes are different. Stop blaming God. You know, the Bible teaches here that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But many people will find error in God. In fact, many of the religions of the earth teach that God is capable of both. He's capable or, or of good or evil. But God is not capable of evil, so stop blaming him. Stop finding fault in him. Also, go places his light is found. Go places his light is found. If, if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then go places where his light can shine. Crack open that Bible. Get into Christian fellowship. Spend time in prayer. Go places where his light is found because he'll do a work in your life as you interact with him. You ever had a best friend where you guys just like influence each other and you change each other and after time it's like you're just so similar? That's not at all what it's like to have a relationship with God. You don't change him at all. But he changes you. You become like him. Practice confession to God and others. You know, take time tomorrow morning, and if you pray, start out your prayer time. Just say, "The Lord, I wanna, I wanna confess some sin to you," and just take a moment and think about what happened in the previous week. Think about your reactions to things. Think about your fears and insecurities. Think about different sin things that have affected you and confess them to the Lord. Set sanctification as a strong desire and hope. You know, in this whole passage, it's just like bleeding out of John's heart. Let's grow. Let's let the blood of Jesus cleanse us from all our sin. It's like a major goal in heart and desire in the New Testament and from John that we would grow into Christ-likeness. And I'm sure many of you would agree with me that it's really sad in the modern church in the West, it seems like so many people have such a low desire to be sanctified. It's like barely a thing at all. Like, okay, I'm in, I'm in the family, that's all that matters. But John and I think godly folks have a strong desire for it. Believe Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. That's in this passage that Jesus died not just for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, and go to the Father knowing you are fully advocated for. You know, when you go to the Lord, remember that Jesus is for you, and pursue Christ because he will be the one to transform your life. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.